How many of you guys come to Wednesday afternoon Bible study? Okay, all right, good, good. Uh, because you folks are actually going to have a leg up uh, on the psalm text that we're going to be looking at today because it's inspired by an event in the life of King David uh, when he was on the run from the court of King Saul and forced to live like a fugitive from his own people you know, out in the, the wilderness in that forbidding desert of Ziph, uh, a lesson that we actually camped out on with David, and I think there's a pun in there somewhere, but a, a story that we, we camped out on quite a bit over several previous lessons from 1 Samuel, and, and a time in David's life when he was inspired and led by the Holy Spirit to write many of the Psalms that we've looked at during Sunday morning worship together over this last two and a half years, including... Uh, the psalm text of Psalm 142. And, and so what I want to do with you guys again today, and we've, we've done this before, uh, is I kind of want you to use what I call your sacred imagination and just, just try and picture the scene with me. Because when we catch up with David today, uh, it's at the point where he has just rescued the entire village of Kalia and, and rescued them from the Philistines. And, and the, the villagers were so grateful uh, for what David had done that in appreciation for his heroism, those cowardly, turncoat, fair-weather citizens of Kalia report David's whereabouts to King Saul. Nice guys. Who, who actually almost catches him this time. And so, because of that, David and his men, some 600 strong, are on the move again. And they head up into the mountains to a, a place called En Gedi, which is on the western shore of the Dead Sea. Uh, to a place where these barren peaks rise, like almost straight up out from the shore, these big limestone bluffs laced with uh, ravines and honeycombed with caverns that were perfect for a group of men on the run, on the run from the long arm of an immoral king. And, and it happened that, that David and his men found a cave. They found a particular cave. It was thankfully large enough for all of them to fit in, some 600 to, to fit in. And the cave was one the locals called Adalam. And so they're, they're hiding out, they're, they're laying low uh, in and around the alleyways and the passageways that stretch back from the entrance to the cave. And they need to maintain that low profile because if you remember, uh, King Saul is like a dog with a bone when it comes to David. Right? And, and now he, along with 3,000 specially chosen men from all over Israel, are actually combing the nooks and crevices of En Gedi on a mission to bring David out dead or alive. And in first, uh, first Samuel 24 actually tells us a little bit of the setup. Uh, it says, after Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But it happened, or as it happened, rather, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Hiding in there with their, their backs literally against the wall, outnumbered five to one, if my math is right, Daniel. All right. And their, their only egress, their only, their only exit, their only pathway to freedom is blocked by an arch enemy with an overwhelming force just outside that must have made David and his men feel like the iron bars of a prison were just about to slam shut in their faces. Right? So all of which, if you can picture all that, 
all of which prompted David in recalling this tense and fearsome event later and, and the things that played out that day to shortly thereafter write the lyrics that would become Psalm 142. So I hope you're following along in your own Bibles because it's, it's great that it's, that it's in mind, but it's even more awesome if it's in one in front of you. Uh, and this is actually superscribed and, and very helpful, a masculine of David when he was in the cave. But it's also labeled a prayer. And this is what David wrote. He wrote, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, you, or rather they, have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from, from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And brothers and sisters, that's the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. God, our Father, <clears throat> we pray that you would come now by your Holy Spirit, uh, open your word to us as we gather to hear it, Lord. Uh, quiet our minds, quicken our hearts, uh, and heal us, Father, from the infection of our sins as we seek your face in the text that we've just read. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as I said, remember, David and his men are, are far back in this cave, uh, a, a cave with only one entrance, which is really good for defense, right? Because you only have to guard one access point. Uh, but with the caveat that it can quickly become a death trap for exactly that same reason, because if there's only one way in, there's only one way out, right? And an enemy force is, is approaching the aperture of that cave in greater numbers by the minute. And just then, while that's all going on, along comes Saul, who, who evidently didn't listen to the conventional wisdom that we all got from our parents and that we, we passed on to our kids that make sure you go at home before you go out on a long trip. <laughs> right? He, he missed that. But either way, Saul hears the call of nature. He steps inside the nearest cave with absolutely no idea that the man that he's after is only a few yards away, hidden by the, the rock walls and under the cover of darkness, in that same cave and what happened next could basically be a whole sermon in itself in how David handled himself and uh, in the things both he and, and Saul do and say next but that's only for the people that come to Wednesday Bible study <laughs> I'm kidding I'm kidding feel convicted but not back no anyway. but actually for really for our purposes today uh, what comes next and what both men say and do is not as important as how the whole essence of that event made David feel. And, and I don't mean in one of those touchy-feely kind of ways, right? Like, you know, like, have you ever been to one of those men's groups where they try to get guys to sit around in a circle and, and share your feelings with the group? That, that's a hard pass for me, thanks. <laughs> Thank, thanks, but no thanks. I'd, Marshall, I'd rather talk to you over the truck bed like we did the other day, right? So... I'm not talking about some kind of surface-level emotional thing. I'm talking about that cathartic moment when David realized today that he was trapped against his will, surrounded by a force 
he had no ability to overcome and completely unable to act decisively in his own rescue unless or until he was liberated by an undeserved grace and favor from Almighty God. And, and church, that's, that's the whole theme of my message today because just like David needed God's grace and favor to allow him to be released from physical captivity, we needed to be free spiritually, to be set free from uh, the sin that we are all born with and our wills that are actually bent toward that sin and that no matter what we do or where we turn, we can't get out of on our own until the Holy Spirit does a sovereign work of regeneration in our hearts, until the Spirit grants us the gift of saving faith and rebirth and leads us to pray as David did in Psalm 142 this morning, O Lord, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. And church, that's, that's the whole message of the gospel. That's the good news that our God is actively saving a people for himself and for his own glory. And it's got absolutely nothing to do with our individual worthiness or, or lack of it, which is, is more like it. It has everything to do with the mercy of God. See, that's the true essence of the Christian faith that our Reformed ancestors wanted to recapture from the Roman church with, with its... Uh, emphasis on the merits of saints uh, and the mandates of canon law and uh, the unscrupulous sale of indulgences. And so, so from roughly like 1517 at the time of the Reformation till about the 1820s in America, so about 300 years, the sovereignty of God in salvation was our message. It, it was, was the message that every Protestant church across the world from, from Budapest to Boston and back around the globe again it was our message up until about the, the 1800s here in this country and the age of American industrialism and the advent of, of pragmatism, which is, if, if you know, that's probably our country's primary philosophy to the exclusion of everything else. Because by nature, we Americans are pragmatists, right? We believe, uh, by and large, if it works, it's right. right. It doesn't matter really too much how you... You, you get from point A to point B as long as you stick the landing. As a matter of fact, in, in my opinion, that's the, that's the essence of that whole... Remember that common core curriculum that was introduced in our schools? Right? Uh, pragmatism. Which, which basically taught kids to evaluate math problems and solve them by reaching the end result no matter the process they used to get there. Have you seen some of the crazy math they have the kids do with little sticks and circles? and Right? So... In my, that's just in my opinion, but already I think subtly embedding the thinking that the method doesn't matter as long as you reach the goal. And that kind of pragmatism has seeped into most of our decision-making today, whether it's on the job or in the home or in our public policy or in our financial markets. And sadly and dangerously, it seeped into the church where anymore getting people down the aisle and onto the member roles in many churches has become our primary business model and our overarching emphasis and the, uh, the ultimate goal regardless of the method. And, and we're really only beginning to see this now that the, uh, the mega church model has mostly run its course, but it's resulted in scores of sanctuaries across this nation and across the world still filled with desperate people trapped in prisons of their own making and feeling like David did today. Uh, look, the, there's none who take notice of me. 
No refuge remains to me. No, no one cares for my soul. Because the reality is, the seeker-sensitive, happy, clappy, low-commitment church idea might look good on the surface, but in reality, it's not biblical. And it doesn't work. And what it leaves us with is a weak church trying to peddle a bill of goods that isn't anything like the original or of any lasting value in this life or in the next. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to be sold anything. Right? Inside or outside a store. I don't like walking up to a, to a store and being hounded by a group of kids selling their cookies and their popcorn and discount cards or just straight up asking for donations, right, before you even make it off the sidewalk. Uh, and then when I get into that store, I want to be able to, to just go and purchase my carefully pre-selected items and get out without anybody trying to convince me that I need anything else. Right? Anybody feel like that? Right? I, I get super annoyed in business meetings, especially with insurance salesmen. Forgive me, insurance salesmen. But particularly when, when they work so hard to upsell me on extra coverage that I don't need or I don't want. Right? And let's not even start talking about car salesmen. Now, now to be fair, to be fair, that aversion to salespeople is probably based on a stereotype. Uh, and admittedly, admittedly, is completely hypocritical because I've been one and I've trained other people to be one in, in sales techniques. But what I'm getting at is, like I'm sure you have, I've encountered way too often salespeople who pretend to be interested in my needs and my desires as a customer, but actually only have one thing in mind, and that's their sales commission, right? And who, who fueled by their desire to close the deal that they push and pry and manipulate and exaggerate. And I know you guys have experienced that. I'm sure you have. But you see, when we as Christians start obsessing over numbers in the name of church growth and try to fill seats or try to attract people with programs and make the whole thing into a great big sales pitch, we actually hurt the message. And we hamstring our members. And we really do the gospel a disservice. And hey, believe me, nobody wants this particular church to grow more than I do. But... I don't ever want it to become something other than the living body of Jesus Christ. I, I don't want it to ever just exist for the sake of existing. I don't want us to ever be impersonal or inauthentic, but to be the place where men and women are delivered from the prison of the world and the flesh and the devil that are constantly arrayed against us like Saul and his armies at the entrance to that cave at, at Adalim. Uh, but that message means preaching the truth. And it means presenting the whole counsel of God's word. And it means reminding folks that sin is still serious and hell is still hot and that sinners still actually go there apart from God's divine intervention. And it also means saying to other Christians, hey, and we said this in Sunday school this morning, don't go looking down your nose at folks who are still unbelievers. Pray for them. Because if it wasn't for God's amazing grace that saves wretches like you and me, you'd still be an unbeliever too, and so would I. And we need to acknowledge that, because, because although American culture may have become supposedly more enlightened and moved beyond such constricting, old-fashioned ideas like sin and, and hell versus election and salvation, but God hasn't. And unfortunately, this is where we start to lose people. Because believe it or not, unbelievers don't really like that message. Go figure. But you know what? Neither do many uh, Christians who think they've somehow saved themselves uh, and that their good works keep them that way. 
And neither group have any idea what David meant in Psalm 142 today when he prayed, with my voice I plead for mercy to God, because neither side, neither, neither the, the self-satisfied sinner nor the smug, self-righteous Christian have any idea of what God's mercy is really all about, because neither one believe they really need it. But what we all need, what we, we both need, is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to bring about the miracle of rebirth into our fallen hearts. Because that's the only thing that sets prisoners free, and it only comes to a person freely. Not because of our free will, but because God is free to save or condemn whoever he will, whether you like it or not. Yeah, I'll never forget um, one of the first few Wednesday night Bible studies that I did when I got here back in 2015. Uh, one lady in particular who since moved out of state was kind of perturbed by that message, by that whole idea. And she said to me afterwards, basically, that's the most awful thing I've ever heard. Because you're making it sound like God is intentionally turning away people who might otherwise uh, want to be saved, and, and he's just picking out a few favorites. And that's not fair. And that's not the Christian faith that I grew up in. That's not how I was raised. And, and she said, I, I definitely know that I made my own choice to be a Christian. I definitely know that. Well, after she had kind of deflated a little bit, you know, sometimes you have to let, let people talk uh, from what I said. I said, let me, let me maybe reframe this just a little different way. I said, I think you're visualizing like I'm trying to say God is somehow standing at a turnstile in heaven, right? And, and people are just thronging, thronging to get in the door and, and God's saying to various ones, yes, yeah, you come in. Uh, no, not, not you. Uh, yeah, you in the back. No, not, not you guys. Um, but that's not it at all. Because the real truth, the truth that the scriptures reveal, the truth that the prophets proclaimed and that our Lord Jesus Christ himself preached is of God the Father standing at the open doors of heaven with his arms outstretched inviting whosoever will to come. But everybody is running as far and as fast in the opposite direction and as hard as they can to head themselves toward hell. Right? God's standing there with the doors wide open and nobody cares. But God... The God who the Bible says is rich and mercy, merciful, graciously reaches out and says, I'll save this one, and I'll save that one, and I'll save this one over here, and that one over there, and effectually draws to himself by changing their hearts and making them willing to come. That's what David was talking about when he says today, my spirit faints within me, but you know my way. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. But I, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you're my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Because, you see, God being the one who sets prisoners free doesn't keep anyone out of heaven who would otherwise have been there. Instead, it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have gone there. You see, if it wasn't for God's sovereign election, heaven would be empty and hell would be bursting at the seams. And when you finally are allowed to see that, when you realize that, it puts a whole different light on things, doesn't it? Give you just a really, really quick real-world example that I, that I think is helpful to me to kind of round this out. You know, we all know stories of babies who are born addicted to drugs, right? right? Stories where, you know, like the mom does drugs while she's pregnant, and those vile chemicals get metabolized into her physiology and then they're passed directly onto the fetus, right? 
So, so when that little newborn precious life is born, it's born wanting and needing and craving of its own free will something that's not good for it, right? Because that's what its will is, is bent toward. And unless a physician steps in and administers an antidote, one which that baby would never willingly ask for or even know about, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the baby? <clears throat> yeah, they're going to continue to crave drugs, right? Well, that's what it's like for the whole race of human beings because the Bible says we were all born infected with sin. And how could we not be, right? Our parent, my parents sinned. Theirs did, and on and on back to our first parents in the garden. And besides all that, nobody has to make us sin, right, or teach us how to. I didn't have to teach my kids how to sin or to lie or whatever. You guys are pretty awesome, but... Right? Anybody have to teach their kids how to sin? <laughs> right? We just want to. And in many cases, let's be honest, we like to. And unless and until the great physician steps in and brings a cure... In this case, his own precious blood, we're going to keep wanting and needing and craving sinful things even though we know we shouldn't. But praise God that in his wisdom and for his own purposes, he always does what's right so that ultimately, those who end up condemned and cast out remain eternal trophies of God's righteous justice. And those who are saved and set apart will be eternal trophies of God's undeserved grace and favor. See, that's the bottom line. That in the end, everyone receives either justice or mercy. Got it? Everybody. Justice or mercy, right? No one ever gets injustice. Except for one. Except for our Jesus. Who willingly experienced the most horrendous act of injustice ever perpetrated on this planet. Where the innocent was sacrificed for the guilty the righteous for the rebellious, the holy for the hell-bound, in the one place, the only place, where God's perfect righteousness and his relentless love for us meet and are reconciled. And that's at the cross of Calvary. That's where God's justice was perfectly administered and his mercy publicly displayed when God took on himself the punishment meant for the guilty, meant for us, for me, so that sinful guilty human beings like me could be reconciled to him without one ounce of guilt being swept under the rug, without one bit of justice unserved, and without one precious drop of mercy wasted, all because of what Jesus endured for us to fulfill the toughness of God's love, or the toughness, rather, of his justice and the tenderness of his love. Because he's the only thing that can bridge that huge chasm between those two extremes, between my sinfulness and his holiness. And he did it by his death on the cross. Because that's where we see the unique revelation of the fullness of God's divine nature. A nature that was only just hinted at and, and pointed to in the Old Testament. Uh, a nature and a hope that, that men like David looked ahead to uh, in time through the daily sacrifices of a, uh, the blood of a spotless lamb. And God seeing the penalty for that sin held and paid by that substitute of an innocent lamb's blood for the forgiveness of the people. And those people like David, year after year, looking ahead in faith that what they did symbolically, the Messiah would accomplish actually someday. And that he would bring an end to all the sin and death and guilt of this crazy fallen world and usher in an age of true justice tempered by divine love. And guess what? 
their hopes came true. They came true. They came true the day that Jesus, at the start of his public ministry, went into his hometown and into his boyhood synagogue. And he was invited to read from the scriptures. And he intentionally turned to Isaiah 61 and he reads out loud, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he sat down and followed that up by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. As Jesus started his journey, the journey that we're celebrating right now in this season of Lent, uh, the journey for him to be the physical, visible demonstration of love and justice straight from the heart of God's holiness so that he could, could bring me out of prison so that I can give thanks to his name and, and do it with the righteous surrounding me, righteous men and women from every tongue and tribe and nation on earth. A number, the Bible says, is too great to count. Made righteous not because of themselves, but like David, set free to live freely. Free from sin, free from death, free from guilt, free to live the rest of your life on earth and eternity in heaven. Because even before I knew it, he reached out his nail-scarred hands to lift me out of my prison, a prison of my own making, and to bring me home. Amen? Let's pray together. <clears throat> God, our Father, we thank you so much that even though we don't deserve it, even though there's no way that we could earn it, that you love us. I don't know why. You know why, Lord, for your purpose and for your glory. Uh, but thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to take my sin and the sins of all who call on your name. And Father, if there's even one here among us or even one that can hear this message that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior asks that you would reach out to them right now by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would open their hearts and minds to hear and receive you, uh, and you would change the rest of their lives. And we ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.